0: and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, coming at you for the first time in the month of February. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's back with you once again, and if you are hearing this, then you are back with us once again, and all is right in the world once
1: again, and we're all back together, and that's really the way it should be, shouldn't it? That's true, and uh, this week I'm Dennis, the man who forgot how strange the tone of the Lethal Weapon movies are. (laughs) I see someone's gone uh, back and uh, been doing a bit of rewatching. Yeah, you know, like for Christmas, my, my partner, she got me uh, the Lethal Weapon Quadrology. So, you know, we finally got around to crack that open, watch the first two. She'd never seen them before, but, you know, obviously to Mike, the legend and myself, they're kind of classic movies. Certainly. Like, I mean, I've seen them. All a million times, like, except for the fourth one. I think I've only ever seen the fourth one once. The fourth one, that was in the nineties with Chris Rock, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a, it, it was much later and wasn't really part of the first three, which is why it's kind of like different in my head, but we'll watch it when we get to it. But the one thing that my partner, she pointed out was like, Hey, um, the tone of these movies is very, very weird cause they go between, she's like, are they meant to be a comedy or is it like, they're dramatic movies because like, you know, th- sometimes things, I'm not saying that something has to be one or the other, like, mm-hmm. you know good movies can kind of oscillate but it's almost like a switch that turns on and off, like this is a drama scene, there's nothing funny about this scene, the tone is really dark and now this scene is a lighthearted. oh, hey Sarge blah, blah, blah. we're going to mess around in the office I'm going to knock over a water cooler by kicking it or something, like Oh, there's gonna be this sassy black woman saying stuff in the office to people like, okay, like, what, what is happening here? The tone is all over the place. Like, Mel Gibson's tr- basically trying to be one of the Three Stooges at times.
0: And yet at other, other times he's, he's terribly haunted by the death of his wife. Yeah.
1: Like, almost kills himself? Like, there's a very intense scene where he puts a gun in his mouth and stuff. You're like, what?
0: But yet there's light ha- light-hearted buddy comedy with him and Danny Glover. Yeah.
1: You know, as a mismatched cop pair. You know, with, with his character of, you know, Murtok. Well, Glover's character of Murtok being, quote-unquote, too old for this shit is his basically his catchphrase throughout the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, uh Mel Gibson's character of Riggs just being a crazy wild card. So, very totally strange. I still love them. I think they're great, but I can see with a fresh set of, you know, adult eyes coming into them that they are strange. You know, I don't think I've ever considered just how strange they would be
0: tonally as a film because uh, I accepted them as 80s, you know, action comedy movies. Yeah. With elements of of drama and whatnot, but they're largely action, action comedies.
1: Yeah. You know, very much Kind of, because that was very, very big in the mid to late 80s, early 90s as well, Mm -hmm. you know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Sylvester Stallone basically making a whole bunch of bank making movies like this, particularly Schwarzenegger. Oh, yes. But his movies perfected the formula. The tonally, they were solid. Nothing seemed too weird or out of the ordinary with any of those movies. I don't know if that was because of Schwarzenegger or just because of maybe better directors or whatever. But it made sense for there to be one-liners there, because there wasn't... It never went too far one way or the other. Like, it kind of kept a consistent tone throughout the whole thing. Whereas Lethal Weapon, there's genuine scenes of, like, it's trying to be serious drama. And then the next scene is, like, a light switch turns on, and now it's goofy.
0: And you have scenes of, I guess, uh, you know, ridiculous action, but then you also have... Like genuine murders. Yes. Like, like not just, you know, someone's killed off screen or you see someone just kind of falling down, but no, genuine action, like actual, uh, someone's kind of shot and you see
1: them shot in the head. Yep. Kind of murders. Blood and all. Yeah. Like disturbing. Like to a disturbing point where it's, it's not just like a comedic like, oh, that's clearly just like, you know, a fake body being used as a human shield or something mm-hmm. like, Like, some of the bananas things you'd see in, like, Total Recall or whatnot, that's like, oh, a guy was just talking, and all of a sudden he just got shot in the forehead, and now he just... Just just dropped. Drops. Okay. There was no, like, ceremony or one-liner there when that guy died, but for some reason, this guy gets brutally murdered. Now there's a cool one-liner about it. It's like, oh, okay. And wait five minutes, we're going to have a ridiculous explosion. Yeah. That's the other thing. Everything explodes? (laughs) There was a scene where, um, well, there was multiple scenes of cars crashing into each other and exploding, but there was literally a scene where a car drove into, I think it was actually like a house and the house exploded. <laughs> Why did the house, what would have, like, what would have caused that level of explosion in a house for a car just driving into it? Was the car full of C four explosives? Like, <laughs> well- <laughs> the toilet in Danny Go- Glover's house explodes.
0: Yes, that's right as well. Yes, uh, because of a pressure plate bomb that uh, was activated once Danny Glover.
1: Well, not, well, his character. His, his character. character.
0: Roger Murtock. Roger Murtock sat down to do his business. Danny Glover is still okay. Yeah. Yeah, he had, probably has a nice facility in his, you know, uh, house, wherever it's located, that has been bought and paid for thanks to his years of taking various acting roles. Yeah. No pressure plates. I'm sure it's nice porcelain, if not marble. Perhaps it's even heated. Maybe. He's earned it. <laughs> but, uh, the lethal weapon movies, now that you say it,
1: yeah, it's... They are, like, ridiculous whipsaws. Yeah. But now, like, thinking about it, it might just be a Richard Donner thing, because I do remember... I, I think I talked to you about it when I first saw it. One of the Superman movies for the first time. Like, I thought it was just insane, because there was a scene in... I, it might have even been the first or second Superman, whichever one had General Zod in it. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I think that might be the second.
1: Yeah. So... The first time I saw that movie, I think I was 19 or 20, old enough to basically have some opinions about what might be good or bad in a movie, and I distinctly remember there was a scene in that movie, like, I actually don't know if Richard Donner directed all of the Supermans or not, but... um, Certainly not all of them, because I think once uh, Superman 3 and 4 came around, uh, there started
0: to be a noticeable decline in quality of the movies.
1: Yeah, but still, there was strange tonal whiplash with that as well, because... I remember there was this the big reveal scene with General Zod. They were trying to show how powerful and stuff him and all of the Kryptonians were. And, you know, they're summoning wind that's powerful enough to make cars go flying. You know, it's ripping out all of the the telephone posts and things like that. And then for some reason it cut to a guy who was trying to eat an ice cream cone and then the ice cream just flew into his face. (laughs) Like, like like what the hell you just showed that that wind is powerful enough to make a car go flying why is the man not fly why is the concern to show this ice cream flying off of an ice cream going into the guy's face why is I don't understand like shouldn't like what that's how strong it was yeah not strong enough to move this average sized man who was eating ice cream, but strong enough to upend telephone posts and make them go flying. Hmm. So total whiplash there as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, like you you're trying to show strong wind, but you really just ruined it with that ice cream yeah. thing, but yeah <laughs> Strong wind, strong wind, strong wind.
0: Very lighthearted
1: comedy. Yeah. It's a it, joke. Yeah, it's a huge joke, but no, like You're causing massive damage here. Maybe people are dying because these cars flying all over the place. What are you? Oh, his ice cream. (laughs) Like, in hindsight, similar kind of weird tonal things there as well.
0: I'm seeing it. And, you know, it's uh, it's kind of occurring to me that as we're talking about Lethal Weapon movies here, the original ones with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, that... They almost felt designed to be like an Abbott and Costello, uh, buddy comedy, but then, uh, there were the interjections of like deep and heavy dramaticness as well, perhaps to give a balance, uh, perhaps so things didn't skew too far in one direction of comedy and action to, to perhaps ground things, uh, in, you know, dramatic reality instead of just being so far flung that they might be, you know, like a Rambo movie or like a Schwarzenegger action movie that are just considered over the top. Yeah. And so far beyond, uh, the pale of realism that, uh, they are kind of off in their own realm. So, uh, that's my thoughts. Uh, let us know your thoughts on the original Lethal Weapon movies with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Do they still hold up? Have you seen the fourth one? Where does it belong in the pantheon of Lethal Weapon movies? Uh, let us know. You can email us, info at thearcadeshow.com. As, uh, as a way of writing out the long-form words, if you just have a quick missive to send off, we are, of course, on social platforms. They are evil. We are there regardless. On Twitter and Facebook,
1: at The Arcade Show. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, Richard Donner was uncredited as directing parts of Superman 2, whereas Richard Lester, uh, I believe, was the... One correctly or credited with directing it because I think, I think it was a thing where the movie was taken away from him midway through. Mm. I don't know. Some film podcast I'm sure has already talked about this um, in far greater and better detail than my two second Googling of this. So, uh, take that what you will. Fair enough. Uh, but yeah. Anyways.
0: So is she enjoying your girlfriend? Has she been enjoying the old Lethal Web
1: movies? Uh, basically in her first watchings. She said she doesn't know. <laughs> so so that's not, you know, it's not good or bad. She, like, will continue with them, but it's not a thing where it's like, oh, yeah, like, when she watched Commando, she said, I enjoyed that a lot more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. Same thing with, like, you know, True Lies and Terminator 2 and stuff. Like, they're actually enjoyable movies, like, regardless of what your opinions on Arnold Schwarzenegger might be. Like, he was a charismatic-as-hell person on the screen. I don't know if that carries through for every single action person of the time to carry a movie. Like, are Mel Gibson and Danny Glover as charismatic charismatic even together as Arnold Schwarzenegger? Hmm. I don't think so. It's a different energy. Yeah.
0: Uh, instead of just there being the one strong man, you know, holding your attention on the screen, it's divided uh into two. But they're... Literally, the, the comedic and dramatic masks. Yeah. You know, Mel Gibson the, being the wild card comedy and Danny Glover's uh, Murtaugh playing the, you know, dramatic mask uh,
1: heavy role. Well, sometimes. And sometimes. Also, also flipping it back and forth as well. At times. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. But speaking of things from yesteryear that will make
0: you mm-hmm. laugh... Obviously, we have spoken many times on this program of our love for old Simpsons, especially the first several seasons of The Simpsons, and if you're like us, those are kind of the core seasons of Simpsons, uh, as it's now, what, in its 33rd, 35th season as being a program? Yeah, something like that, but generally like... A number that's way too
1: high. Yeah, some of... I mean, there will be people who are fans of the current show that will disagree, but for those of us who were around watching it when it was brand new... There It's hard to recapture the basically comedic perfection of the first 10 seasons of the show. I say 10 seasons. Arguably, like, there's people even within that that are going to argue, oh, only two to seven are good or something like that. I'm just going to say the first 10 is a blanket statement, even though, you know, there's... It started to fall off even during the 10th season, but still. Yeah, 10 seasons, great. Everything after that... Kind of dodgy. Yeah, and
0: I have not watched it in any sort of recent time, so I don't know about the current quality of the product, because I have those images and nostalgia for the first ten seasons, and there were some absolutely classic episodes in there, uh, like the trip to
1: Land, Bart gets an elephant. Bart gets an elephant. The monorail. Bart falls down the well. Yeah, Bart falls down the well. Yeah, ton- <laughs> I mean, we don't need to keep listing off tons of classic Simpsons episodes. I mean... You're, everyone's
0: gonna have their favorite, but certainly one of them that's gonna be on any list of classic Simpsons episode is, uh, what, 22 stories about Springfield? Yeah.
1: 22 short films about
0: Springfield. 22 short films about Springfield. Classic episode where it's quite literally 22 short films about Springfield. It's not any sort of uh, episode about, focused on Bart and Lisa getting into a wacky adventure or anything like that. It's different stories uh, each focusing on a different character in the town of Springfield. Yeah, that aren't the Simpsons. That aren't the Simpsons, which was actually really distinct and unique at the time. And in one of those short stories, those short films, we see an interaction about uh, Principal Skinner hosting Superintendent Chalmers for a lunch date. Yeah,
1: and it's basically, against what are essentially all odds, for some reason... That one skit, which is called "Steamed," people refer to it as the "Steamed Hams" bit, mm-hmm. um, is basically one of the favorite things on the internet, and has been basically the subject of all sorts of Simpsons um, fans making adaptations and reinterpreting the art in various different ways. I've seen everything reference Steamed Hams, and. Yeah, to the point where it's ridiculous. Like, I've seen Steamed Hams crossovers with other cartoons. I've seen Steamed Hams um, basically being reinterpreted by, you know, in different languages or people just re-recording it or trying to recreate it in real life. And it's taken on legs of its own in such a banana's way that, like, you know, Bill Oakley, I'm sure, is probably the man who wrote the scene, is probably thinking, like, how could I have even imagined this? It almost feels like it's become, uh, the
0: version of Who's On First, but for a new generation.
1: Yeah, because- One of, one of those timeless classic comedy bits. Yeah, but it, in many weird ways, it, it of itself shouldn't be as funny as it is, because it's, it's not it's trying to be unfunny, and that makes it funny. It's basically just like pointing out how there's no chemistry whatsoever between Seymour and Superintendent Chalmers, uh, like Principal Skinner and Superintendent Chalmers. There's no chemistry between them. They don't like each other, but Skinner tries everything he possibly can to make his boss like him, and this was one of those fumbled, failed attempts that kind of went a little bit well, even at the ridiculous expense of everything. If you've never watched Themed Hams* watch it. It's just, it's worthwhile. It's, it's funny. Like it's very, it's, it's hard to understand why it's funny, but it's funny and it's broke the internet essentially to use that stupid
0: overused phrase. Mm -hmm. It it has. And there's an awkwardness to the comedy and the interaction between the two that seems so perfectly executed. Yeah. That it just, I, I think that perhaps is... Helped it sustain uh, in people's minds and the zeitgeist or in the pantheon of comedy for this time. And the internet loves it, as you've pointed out. And some people on the internet have now released a new ad- adaptation, a new interpretation of the Steamed Hams segment from The Simpsons, uh, releasing it as a point-and-click adventure. Yeah. That you can download and play through yourself. Well, you can
1: also play it just on your web browser On as your well. web browser, yeah. But, it's uh- It's available to play. Yeah, and it's- <laughs> It's not very long, it doesn't take very long to get through, but it's- It's worth playing, cause it's really well done. It's- that, I, That's all I really need to say about it. I mean, there's not much to this ludicrous lead-off other than the fact that someone did this, and it's well done.
0: Which uh I mean, go play it now while you can before rights issues and whatnot, and ultimately perhaps it gets taken down. This is a fan uh uh effort you know it's done with love and reverence uh it is not necessarily looking for money or profit, uh, it is done simply to put a different spin on uh the scene, the steamed ham scene, and even Bill Oakley has appreciated it uh he shared the game on Twitter and simply said, oh my God, as a response to this game being a thing.
1: Yeah. Bill Oakley is also very approachable on Twitter as well. Like if you have questions about anything that he wrote, there's a good chance he'll answer you. I never have, but yeah, I've I've had, you know, other people, actually a friend of mine did ask him a thing once and he responded and I thought it was pretty cool. So he's very approachable and, you know, he's on there and, if you ever have any questions, now's the time to ask people. Like, this is – I think this is maybe the best use of social media. True.
0: It's, it's an ability to demystify and uh, give greater accessibility to things. Yeah. I mean, if you can talk to Bill Oakley, one of, you know, those staple Simpsons writers from the early years. Yeah. Why not? I mean, if we could talk to John Schwarzfelder, that'd be great, but he's kind of reclusive. Yeah, very, recru- very reclusive. <laughs> Stays in his house in California just writing his own books. Yeah. Uh, can't remember what the, what the heck they're called, but it's a whole series he's got of books.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember the name of the character, but it's basically about some like bumbling detective who's not a good detective and stuff. Like, yeah.
0: Yes. So we link to it on our website, the com, for you to uh, find it directly yourself. Uh, the steamed hams clip from 22 short films about Springfield. From the seventh season of the classic era, the, the, you know, good solid era of Simpsons, uh, now available to play as a point and click adventure. So that's entertaining. Um, less entertaining is our next ludicrous lead off, uh, simply solidifying the fact that, uh, we're going to continue talking about these, uh, at various points through the course of this year as they will continue to be a thing.
1: Yeah. Despite them being incredibly frustrating for both of us to talk about, because they're literally a scam. Literally a scam.
0: Literally a scam. But now there's been a new way that uh, this scam has been interpreted and approached to make it even more scammy and combine it with elements of another previous uh, scam, if you will, uh, in the video game realm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, this thing, of course, um well, I'm just going to say we're going to mention it what it is initially we're, we're we're talking about NFTs now. It's only a matter of time these days it seems before we have to talk about NFTs at some point almost every program because there were all the big news is coming from financial and otherwise unfortunately where you know these people are getting rich and you know buying things just to sell them but they're not quite sure what the things are I guess. It's,
0: uh, kinda like a, I guess the gold rush, uh, from California and the Yukon of, you know, maybe 200 years ago, but digitally.
1: Yeah, that's what they're trying to say it's like, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so that's a thing, NFTs are a thing, until people eventually realize there's no gold in them, they're hills, but, but beyond that. Uh, yeah. Up until that point, people will think there's gold and they will chase after this digital gold and these assets, and we're talking about NFTs this particular episode because uh the dead skin mask wearing husk that calls itself Atari has found a new way to put uh a different spin on NFTs because the dead skin mask wearing husk that calls itself Atari is releasing anniversary NFTs to mark the 50th anniversary of the company that was once known as Atari. There's going to be a lot of caveats and a lot of previously known as blah, blah, blah through the talking of the story because Atari has passed through so many hands now, they're basically
1: a hand puppet. They're, they're a brand, they're, they're essentially a logo and a brand that some holding company owns now. No one who was originally part of the original mm. core of Atari is involved. No. Like, Nolan, Nolan Bushnell's no longer there, like he's like an 80-something year old man who's also been kind of disgraced for other various reasons and things like that. It's like, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you, you see a band from the 1960s playing some county fair and then you go up and you're like, Oh, so like the only person who looks legitimate is the drummer and he's their third drummer. All these other guys are just like maybe jobbers that they hired to kind of play the music. So it's like, can you really say that you are CCR? Where's yeah. John Fogarty? Like what's going on here? <laughs> So that's the situation with Atari right now. Like, it's, uh yeah. Yeah, their
0: name and a logo that's just constantly being milked by the people who own it right now. And so it's no surprise they're going to get into the NFT game, but they're releasing commemorative 50th anniversary NFTs that have been developed and produced by Republic Realm, who are active developers in the Metaverse and the NFT ecosystem. And these NFTs... Uh, I should specify, they're not your average NFTs. No, no, friend. These are special, unique GFTs because these are giftable NFTs that will quote-unquote unwrap with a surprise inside on a specific date. Yeah. So, you don't necessarily know what you're buying. Or what you're getting, you're getting a box that will unwrap at a specific date at a specific time, and then whatever, you get what you get. So that's very much an element that was existing in loot boxes. Mm-hmm. Combined with NFTs.
1: Yeah. The worst of two worlds? <laughs> I mean, I think so. Atari, or whoever's calling themselves Atari now, doesn't think so. But, you know, they're they're not in it for the long haul. They're just in it for to get as much money as they can out of this Atari name in as short um, amount of time as possible, you know, as you would do if you're someone like a lot of the NFT hucksters out there.
0: Yes, exactly. Go get your money and get out as soon as you can and inflate the market, and then as more people, you know, rush to it, well, then uh, it might be perceived that there's more money to be made, or just more people to uh, try and sell your expertise to, and yeah. make money that way. Uh, there's 10 different GFTs, as they're being known, giftable, fungible tokens, available in this Atari collection, that are apparently inspired by the 50 years uh, in Atari's gaming history in the game industry, uh, with some more rare than others kel surprise according (laughs) to the roadmap on the website for these items uh, the gfts will unwrap on a specific date where users will find out if their item is common rare or epic as more gfts are bought access to more is granted on top of game competitions and leaderboards as the quote-unquote metaverse grows so so let's review here the the techie buzz uh business terms we've covered nfts loot boxes and now metaverse Take shots for all three, yeah, like if you 're following along with the, the drinking game at home or wherever you are, perhaps at work, perhaps the gym, take a couple drinks because we just uh, mentioned some of the big tech buzzy terms that are still going on, so yeah
1: so i 'm amused and frustrated by the various ways that people who are into nfts try to justify their existence, um, Janine Yorio, who is the CEO of public uh, Republic realm were, as we said, the uh developers of this GFT thing. Uh they say uh the GFTs are and I quote, like Hallmark cards for the next generation, a more exciting, meaningful gift than either a greeting card or a gift certificate. End quote mm,
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's <coughs> one
1: spin on it, certainly. But I'm pretty sure gift cards have uh, Mo- real monetary value, and yeah. you could actually buy something at a store that it says for sure on it, yes. and they don't expire, and there's no weird caveats, and if the property that it's pointing to on the internet disappears, there's no problem, because, you know... You I'm still not- have the gift card? Yeah, because like as long as the store is still in business, you can still use it. It's right? true. that That's how gift cards work. Yeah,
0: because they are essentially cash. Yes, they, they are money that has been... You know, condensed into a plastic card form or if you're an older establishment or perhaps less advanced, a gift certificate, like a paper certificate that verifies and authenticates, yes, this, this card that the holder presents is worth X value of dollars. Yeah. You have value of money right there in your hand in a different form instead of cash dollary dues or use on your credit cards or debit, whatever the the situation might be. But specifically for one establishment, perhaps it's a restaurant, bar, retail chain, or
1: whatever. Yeah. Also, I think this is sort of like discounting the purpose of what a greeting card is supposed to represent, The card itself is not the exciting part about receiving a card. It's who sent you the card and for what occasion, right? It's Mm -hmm. just like, oh, who's thinking about me on Christmas? Oh, I got these nice things on Christmas from these various people. Oh, nice greeting card on my birthday. I guess a thing from my grandparents on Easter or something. Okay, whatever. Like, you know, things like that. It's You're not excited by the card itself, right? Like, it's just literally paper with a picture on it. Who cares? But... It's, you know, more the, f- like, I hate to, you know, bring up some stupid, empty, meaningless phrase or something, but it's the thought that counts.
0: It, it literally, a greeting card is a demonstration of, uh, in most cases, is a demonstration of thought and effort that yeah. somebody is taking uh to impart upon someone else. Yeah. A- and that's what a green- greeting card is. Can you derive that same sense of... Thought and effort from
1: someone giving you an NFT? Yeah, because to me there feels like there's extra steps always required in this thing, right? Like, it's not like... Like, at least, like, once you've received the the greeting card, that's it. Oh, thanks for the card. Mm-hmm. Transaction completed. Oh, here's an NFT. So I have to wait around and wait for some digital thing to happen with this now? How do I load it up? Like, what's the... Do I need a wallet for this now? What's the, what's the next step? Mm -hmm. Is it in my email? How does it, how does your specific thing work? Do I have to download a specific program? Do I have to
0: sign up for anything to go see and use this NFT or view this NFT? Yeah.
1: Which arguably is also some of like the more negative aspects of gift cards as well. Like sometimes, you know, if you don't really know what to get someone, a gift card might be an okay thing if you know that it's a store that they shop at. But if it's if you're just kind of like, oh well, maybe they like you know, uh woodworking stuff and I'll go to a woodworking thing, it there's nothing worse than, you know, receiving a gift card for a thing and you're like, I don't care about this thing at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now they've spent fifty bucks on a thing that I'm never gonna use. Now I have to look like, Oh thanks But this is like extra steps now because it's like it's not just like at least a card that can sit there, you're like, Okay, whatever, at least there's fifty bucks if I want to go into that store. This is now, do I have to sign up for an account? Like you said, like, what are the next things I have to do on this? Yeah, the, with an NFT being sent to someone with
0: uh, Janine Yorio's uh, description that's, that this might be like a Hallmark card for the next generation. No, Hallmark cards are very much standalone. They sit there on like your mantle, your your TV stand, shelf in your room, wherever. they stand, They sit there, they stand there, and then eventually they get filed away or recycled, whatever the case might be. Uh, an NFT transaction requires a lot more effort on the end users or the recipients part. And also they only exist in a digital realm. So you will only see them if you're like pulling up that specific app page, whatever on your phone or your computing device. Yeah. Whereas the, the greeting cards exist forever on your shelf. TV stand,
1: mantle, whatever the case might be. Yeah, or even if they don't exist forever, like you can still throw it away and there's no real impact. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like your gift card that, you know, you wrote some goofy message to your friend just meant to celebrate their, maybe their new job or something. Some very specific point in time for one thing. There's no impact to you going, oh thanks. And if you don't need it anymore, like no one's getting super offended if you throw it away, right? No. Like, it's not meant to be around forever, like.
0: It's, it's celebrating a specific point in time, at a specific occasion. Yeah. Uh, this is celebrating Atari's 50th anniversary, which is a very specific point in time, very specific occasion. And as Wade Rosen, current CEO of the Dead Skin Mask Wearing Husk that calls itself Atari, says in the press release for these GFTs, quote, what better way to commemorate Atari's 50th anniversary than by ushering in a new era of technological innovation while also honoring the brand that launched the modern video game industry? End quote.
1: Yeah. Oh, we can also add one more word to our um, current... Uh, bingo card? Bingo card and add e-commerce in there as well because uh, apparently also uh, this GFT Atari commemorative collection will be available... You know, after it's available, Republic Realm says that they're, uh, not stopping at this GFT thing. They're saying the, and I quote, the Atari collection is just the first project based on a beloved brand to feature its, and it's GFT shopped. You get, like gift shop? Mm-hmm. Um, which is what they're calling a quote, metaverse based e-commerce platform and retail store. End quote. Nice. So just to recap, NFT. NFT. Uh, metaverse. Metaverse. E-commerce, e-commerce, loot box. We have loot loot box. box is another one. Yeah, so that's four. What's five of bingo if you want to consider it? Or I guess if if it was across the right way, mm-hmm. if you got the the free space, the free in the space middle,
0: always got a free space.
1: You might have got the bingo. That's right. So bingo, so, you, you got a tech buzzword bingo.
0: <laughs> yes. So, Atari and uh, these Atari GFTs, the commemorative collection uh became available on February 1st. There's no stated date yet for when I guess these boxes unwrap to reveal what sort of Trotsky you got inside. Yeah, what sort of digital
1: digital Trotsky, not digital not, even, not even a real Trotsky, like I guess to be fair also Maybe this is a little bit better than more plastic crap that's going to be around forever that takes up space in a landfill, like bobbleheads or those or Funko Pops or whatever kind of garbage, or like mm-hmm. water bottles with an Atari logo on it that mm-hmm. you know are good for five years before they disintegrate mm-hmm. because they're garbage plastic. Yeah, m- maybe this is better than that, but also maybe not because the ecological impact of all this crypto and NFT stuff is also not good. So, hmm. Yeah, so remains to be
0: seen, but uh, Atari fiftieth anniversary
1: GFTs, giftable fungible tokens, giftable NFTs, giftable NFTs. Because I assume the non part of the NFTs is maybe still important. True, they are still very much existing as non fungible items. Yeah, so
0: there's that. But so again, these are things that people think are worth a lot of money,
1: and eventually will be proven wrong. Just give it time. Yeah, so it. <laughs> They're gonna make some people a lot of money right now if those people already have a lot of money. Mhm, mhm. That's, that's what it is.
0: Like people like you and I or any sort of other Richard Thomas or Harold who, who try to jump in, uh, to this, uh, NFT craze, we're not gonna be making off like bandits. We're no. not gonna make, be making any sort of big scores. No.
1: Like, yeah. <laughs> if anything else, it's basically no different than you know, investing in some sort of super volatile stock, like a meme stock or something. Mm-hmm. Not really a lot different than that. That's true. So,
0: so yeah, that will still be a thing that unfolds as the year goes along. Uh, but another thing that will unfold as the year goes along, as we now get into our more meat and potatoes news portion of the show, is M&As, mergers and acquisitions. We spoke <laughs> on the last episode about uh two that were... Already underway, of course. Most notably, Microsoft uh, and their announced plan to purchase Activision Blizzard for a, a tidy sixty-eight point seven billion dollars. Uh, I believe Take Two was uh, also announcing there as buying uh, Zynga for or another company for a couple billion, 12 billion Yep. And now we have yet another acquisition in the video game space. Yeah, another very big one. Another
1: very big one, though. Dollar-wise, not as big. No, dollar-wise, definitely not as big, perhaps because I think um, the biggest thing that this team worked on is actually a thing owned by Microsoft when they were sort of a subsidiary of Microsoft before they broke free and became an independent entity. But they're no longer going to be an independent entity because now Sony is purchasing them for $3.6 billion. And that them that we're talking about is Bungie. Remember Bungie? Yes, they did the first couple Halo
0: games, and I think they were under Microsoft's uh, control for, oh God, like 10 years? Yeah. Seven to 10 years? Sounds about right. And then eventually they kind of went their own way, wanted to go their own way, mind you. Yeah. And then they kind of broke free. Uh, then they had a publishing deal with Activision for like 10-ish years, and through that they released... The Destiny games. Yeah. Destiny 1 and Destiny 2, and that is now their well-established franchise that they're putting a lot of time, energy, and effort into, uh, and that will still be something they put a lot of time, energy, and effort into, because uh, Bungie apparently is going to be, despite the takeover, a, quote, Independent subsidiary of Sony Interactive Entertainment, and they will be run by a board of directors consisting of current CEO and chairman Pete Parsons and the rest of the studio's current management team. So, this is a very interesting acquisition in that it's not really looking like Bungie is being absorbed into the greater, uh, entity that is Sony, but they'll, they're very much just kind of going to be almost like a satellite entity. They're just kind of there.
1: Yeah. So Sony bought them just to operate the way that they're normally used to operating. I think just so Sony now can just say, well, we're adding to our first party roster of stuff.
0: Uh, Entirely possible. Although it was announced too that in the press release release, with this announcement that uh, Sony has said Bungie will remain a multi-platform studio with the option to self-publish and reach players Wherever they choose to play,
1: yeah, so a little
0: bit strange, it's certainly strange now I'd imagine any sort of you know established property that uh has been on multiple platforms previously, say like destiny will continue to be multi platform, anything new, maybe Sony gets a first look at it, first crack, and they get to uh do what they want with it, pass yay or nay, if they want exclusivity on it, I don't know this is a bit different than the you know mergers and acquisitions we've seen in the past few years. Sony Interactive Entertainment President and CEO Jim Ryan said of this announcement, quote, We've had a strong partnership with Bungie since the inception of the Destiny franchise, and I couldn't be more thrilled to officially welcome the studio to the PlayStation family. He goes on to say, quote, This is an important step in our strategy to expand the reach of PlayStation to a much wider audience. We understand how vital Bungie's community is to the studio, and look forward to supporting them as they remain independent and continue to grow. Like Bungie, our community is core to PlayStation's DNA, and our shared passion for the gamer and building the best place to play will now evolve even further. End quote. So Parsons also said that Sony uh, is supporting the studio's dual goals of making generation-spanning entertainment while staying creatively inter- in- independent. He says of that, quote, both Bungie and SIE believe that game worlds are the are only the beginning of what our IP will become. Our original universes have immense potential and with Sony's support, we will propel Bungie into becoming a global multimedia entertainment company dedicated to delivering on our creative vision end quote. So the sum total of the deal of this transaction is estimated to be 3.6 billion dollars or sta- sorry stated as being 3.6 billion dollars. Which, in the grand scheme of things, again, Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard for sixty-eight point seven, yeah, and Take Two buying out Zynga for
1: twelve point seven, this is almost seems like peanuts, paltry. But I mean, if it has the potential to be more like Microsoft purchasing uh, Bethesda, Mojang, or Mojang. I mean, like Minecraft at this point now is kind of a ubiquitous gaming thing and mm-hmm. that's owned by Microsoft. It is. They have that. No one can take that away from them at this point and they only had to spend 2.5 billion dollars a few years ago to get it. That's true. So
0: and it has remained multi-platform since.
1: Yep, with the
0: gamers uh, playing and making purchases uh, of the game on different platforms ever since.
1: Yeah. So but I guess also on a similar note not talking not to disparage Mojang but they are kind of a one trick pony. Yes. They like they've only really we only really know them as the Minecraft people similar to Bethesda you know they they have more than one franchise under their belt that they've delivered on so it'll be very interesting to see what happens what they come up with in the future and if it will actually maintain its multi-platform status. That's a good question i I don't know, but
0: an, another interesting detail about this transaction there's the three point six billion dollar price point that uh, is attached to this deal of Sony buying Bungie, which is that's a lot of scratch. yeah, no two ways about it three point six billion. you and I would retire for less than that
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, like one percent of that we'd be happy with <laughs> yeah and well we- of course like that, that's still I'd, I'd retire on probably a tenth of a percent of that. Maybe less than that, even. Like, yeah. Because $3.6 billion, that's $3,600 million. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's not forget about... Like, it's hard to fathom. Uh, 10% of that is still still $360 million. Yes, it is. And a tenth of a percent, $36 million. A tenth of a tenth? That's still $3.6 million. Like, would I retire on that? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe hey, not. Uh, you play your cards right, you probably are able to. Yeah, I mean, you'd be able to... You'd have to invest it and stuff and make sure you've got it kind of set up well, but just talk to a good financial planner and they'll get you going and you should be able to live off of it pretty comfortably. And certainly. So the 3.6 billion, that's, that's a lot. No two bones about
0: that. That's a lot. However, that figure of 3.6 billion takes into account the fact that Sony has now said that they will be spending 1.2 billion on incentives to retain Bungie staff after this transaction takes place and will do so for several years, yeah, so two point four billion is actually the purchase price for the studio itself. one point two billion is to keep all the staff happy uh, so uh, the the exact uh, quote here uh, from one of the uh, I guess uh, earnings reports from Sony about this deal says that uh, Sony will estimates that approximately a third of the transaction money will be used for, quote, deferred payments to employee shareholders conditional upon their continued employment and other retention incentives, end quote. And this is kind of different from normally what we see in the business world where uh, a merger and an acquisition take place where you know there's rounds of layoffs to be had. Oh, yeah. On either the purchasing company's part
1: or the purchased company's part or yeah. both. Yeah, both I mean redundancies happen like I mean like the whole basis of like you know um the show The Office was that you know it was sort of meant to be showing you know what happens to a company that's currently trying to close one of one or more of its branches because of finding redundancies and stuff like that so you you it's it, it's not like it's an uncommon thing to happen mm-hmm. So like, how many middle managers will you need that manage the same types of things, right? Or, do you have way too much coverage in one area that you don't need? Can you reallocate people? Whatever, like, it's not uncommon to happen in a sense. Not just in the tech industry either, no. like, m- like whenever a merger or an acquisition happens, it just happened, like, people will be casualties. It's true. Not, not literally, like they're not gonna die, but their jobs will be casualties.
0: Yes, yes, their positions will be, uh, will be, uh, removed, no longer, uh, deemed necessary. Uh, however, Sony deeming all of, seemingly all of Bungie's staff necessary. Or yeah. as many as they, they want, to, or whoever wants to stay around will be necessary. So, uh. Well, the ones who are shareholders anyway. Yes, uh, the Washington Post reporting that the deal means that some staff would receive uh quote, roughly a year's worth of income in compensation, though not necessarily all at once. The article from the Washington Post saying, quote, employees will, see, will receive 50% of their equity payouts when the Sony deal closes and 50% over the next few years, end quote. So Sony wants the talent. They want the staff. They want the developers, artists, uh, technicians, server people, whatever. They want these people yeah and they are interested uh in the people but also it it seems another aspect of this deal is that sony being a vertically integrated company wants the properties as well because they have designs on the properties beyond just the gaming sphere in later reporting on this deal joe screbbles from ign uh has uh, written and said that uh well written up about uh uh a Q&A session that Sony CFO Hiroki Totoki, uh, kinda had in an earnings call uh, earlier in this week and was asked about the Bungie transaction and Hiroki Totoki, uh, gave an answer about the Bungie deal that, uh, about why the, you know, company was acquiring Bungie and what uh, they expect to acquire and so his answer kinda covered some of the hiring and employee te- retention things but also touched on the fact that Sony is a multimedia company. Yeah. They have a television arm. They have a movie arm or a movie studio. And he said of Sony's position as a multimedia company, quote, it's not just for the gaming area, he's talking about buying Bungie, but the multi-using of intellectual property and merchandising of intellectual property, like a game title, may be put into movies, Bungie want to nurture the IP they have in a multi-dimensional manner, and that's their hope. For that, we believe we can help that. We have Sony Pictures, we have Sony Music, and Bungie can leverage our platform so that their IP
1: can flourish and grow big. Yeah. End quote. Which makes sense. I mean, if ever there was, you know, appetite to make a Destiny movie, so like, how... Like... This will save the step of having to shop it around to a production company. That's true. And
0: not only that, Sony can, you know, have the film studio, you know, get the monies and the profits from that, own the rights to it, but then have the tie-in ancillary benefit of the game doing well, promoting that, promoting the movie through the game.
1: And um, vice versa. And
0: vice versa, certainly. So this is, there's an element of just dynamic integration With this uh, Bungee being bought out by Sony, that we don't see, say, with Sony buying Activision Blizzard or Bethesda, or Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard or Bethesda.
1: Yeah, because there's no. Well, I mean, there there are Microsoft. I think they do have a TV production arm and maybe a movie production arm, but they're not as established as Sony. Sony's been like Sony Pictures has been making movies for like. Years, years
0: certainly they are so. a much
1: more well-established name yeah so than
0: whatever microsoft is trying to do and even then i don't know if microsoft has the appetite uh they have shown that they are more focused on content and software uh rather than spin-offs uh like turning minecraft into uh a microsoft movie or anything like that yeah uh, which they have not done in the time that they've you know since they bought out moyang so Uh, this is one of the more intriguing deals we have seen, and I know on the last episode when you and I were talking about, uh, mergers and acquisitions and who's going to be bought out next and whatnot, I don't know if we had Bungie
1: necessarily on the list. No. I mean, Ubisoft is still, I would say Ubisoft is still on the list. They're still tops on my list. I mean, honestly, everyone is on the list. Like, who are we kidding? Like, that's how business works, but... Who's more likely to get bought by who is the question. I mean, I wouldn't consider Bungie, but I guess now we should kind of look at maybe whoever is a similar size to Bungie to be maybe considered by a bigger company. Though interestingly enough, Sony, in in terms of like market capitalization, they're nowhere near the size of a Microsoft or – um you know anything like that mm-hmm. like they're, they're not p- they're not one of the big tech names no like they are big like they're still like a 100 uh what is it here so like a 135 billion dollar company but they're not a <laughs> multi trillion dollar company like microsoft no or apple or, or apple or, or google amazon. or amazon yeah
0: no sony is n- certainly not in the realm of those big fang names no uh or the big tech names but sony's still there they still are in the consumer electronics sphere.
1: They're still in the entertainment sphere. They're still in the gaming sphere. So what about an even crazier idea? What if what if we were to see something like Netflix purchase Sony then? Whew. Could that be a thing that happens? That's a wild and crazy idea.
0: You know in this in this time of crazy mergers and acquisitions, is Sony up for purchase or like their their gaming division or something up for purchase?
1: Yeah. Well, if you're going to buy Sony, I don't know buy if you buy everything, right? Because yeah, like <laughs> the the value is in everything that they do, not just one thing, they mm-hmm. I would imagine. But yeah, <laughs> like, are they on the table? That's a great question. I mean,
0: everyone's got a price. Yeah. As yeah. the million dollar man Ted DiBiase used to say, <laughs> everyone's got a price. Everyone's yeah. gonna pay. Because the million dollar man always gets his way. Yes. Yes, uh, yes. We, we know the theme song. If you don't, you should. So, <laughs> but that was in the eighties. Again, a time when mergers and acquisitions were a big thing in international business.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the, the first rise of what we saw to be, you know, stereotypical Wall Street greed. Yes. So, very much so. So yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of there again.
0: We're there again,
1: but, but in a very weird way because it's sort of like, tempered by all this other weirdness happening with the economy and all the global situation with the pandemic and all this stuff.
0: It feels like it's a weird amalgam of 80s, murders, business, you know, buy everyone else, the, the big fish, just get bigger. Combined with like the early 2000s dot com, just the bubble, yeah, bubble of just companies being flush with cash and everyone thinking that it's uh, the Internet is just a license to print money and nothing can ever go wrong. Yeah. And of course, history has borne out, yes, no, things can go wrong and bubbles can burst, so. Yeah. And m- money constantly
1: being flooded into the market maybe isn't a good thing. No. It's, it's literally like if balloons can only be inflated so much before they literally explode. There's a breaking point for everything. This is true. And hence the bubble analogy. Bubbles always burst. They do. They don't last forever. So we'll see how this all plays itself out, but, uh,
0: this is, Certainly an intriguing one, and if you're hearing this news of Bungie being acquired by Sony and thinking, well, this is just a knee-jerk reaction by Sony to uh, the fact that Activision Blizzard is, you know, being bought by Microsoft, no, incorrect friend, I did read reporting uh, about this deal that said it's been in the work for several months now. Yeah. Uh, If anything, it's a reaction to Microsoft buying Bethesda. Yeah, that, that makes more sense. Because these massive business deals, they don't happen overnight. They don't happen overnight, and they never happen in a vacuum. No. There's always reactions in other dominoes to fall.
1: Yeah. When you're talking about that much money, the amount of due diligence that happens before a media release can even potentially be considered is ridiculous. Oh, God. Like, ridiculous. The teams of accountants. Yeah. Accountants, lawyers, lawyers. People making sure that everything is in order, people going through all of the assets of everything, making sure that nothing's out of bounds or out of line or anyone's doing something slightly wrong before – like everything has to be properly in order before any money starts to change hands and you're not going to announce anything before – Anything is finalized, so... And then, of course, there's government uh,
0: regulations, perhaps, that you have to deal with, or filings that you may have to deal with as a result of the transaction, so yeah. there's a lot that goes into these. So you nothing's ever a knee-jerk reaction, but certainly deals can then motivate other people to do other deals. Yeah. So, uh but speaking of deals, mergers, and acquisitions, uh, another merger and acquisition happened this week that perhaps caught a lot of people by surprise. Yeah. The fact that the New York Times has bought the current word game phenomenon
1: that is Wordle. Yeah, I mean, as a as a holder of a 25 day streak, I really hope that uh, very nice this, this doesn't really affect anything. But uh, if you've never played Wordle, um, you might well if you're on. Social media, or if you know you have a work chat or something, you might have seen that weird thing that might have popped up on occasion where people sharing you know the the green gray, and yellow yellow dots, yeah, or you know black dots, whatever not I say dots, I mean squares with the word like wordle followed by some number followed by something out of six mm-hmm. that's just the the way people get to share how many guesses they had and if they actually guessed the word correctly for the day. Mm -hmm. So Wordle's a word game that uh, was inspired by things like the New York Times Daily Crossword, just as a, as a way for a guy whose name I believe was Josh Wordle, who was a web developer who just wanted to kind of build a thing for his girlfriend who loved word games. And that was it. So he made this thing, uh, you know, that his girlfriend, for his girlfriend, and then it basically took on legs of its own, became super popular. It's free, but you know, everything that's free that's super popular kind of starts to wear on it, on people if it's a one person operation, mm-hmm. as I think it was for Josh Wardle, which, yeah, so in this case, win-win, he gets some money and he gets to kind of throw his hands up and go, great, the team of developers over at New York Times can, uh, take this on now.
0: And it's not as though this is a transaction in the same stratosphere as, you know, the big gaming transactions we've spoken about this episode and previous episodes. This is not billions of dollars, but it no. is still a
1: seven figure sum. Yeah, which means it's between one and one million and just shy of ten million. Yes. So we don't know the exact amount that was paid for this, but, uh, and it was a private trans- transaction. We don't
0: n- need to know, and we don't necessarily are going to find out. Yeah,
1: but I think it's worth reporting on or talking about this, anyways, because I think in the grand scheme of things, this may maybe is an even more impactful transaction to one person than a merger of the size of you know Sony buying Bungie might be, right? Uh, certainly, uh, Josh Wardle. I mean, he He's was just one guy. He was a one man band.
0: Yeah. in the same way uh unfortunately a concerned ape was uh developing uh, Stardew Valley. Yeah, exactly. Or um Toby Fox with Undertale kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And those eventually, you know, it's all yours, which is great, but you have the you have the, both the good and negative consequences of that as well. You can ha- you know, push through your independent artistic vision, but then you have to deal with all the headaches and foibles that come along with it as well of being a one-person development team. Yeah. And Josh Wardle, to his credit at least, uh, Wardle, the game, is a, seems a very simplistic experience. Yeah. And so he's been able to get it up and it's, it's not new. It's been around for a couple months already, but it's really had a very organic growing of its fan base and, and user base. Yeah. Like it's been steady. There's been no promotion. There's been no, you know, it's literally just word of mouth and word of social media and yeah. seeing people post their scores for the day and wondering, what the hell's that? Yeah. You know, it's a word game. Oh, yeah, it's this thing. You make guesses. It's a five letter word and yeah, hope you get it right. Yeah. And everyone, I think this is a unique aspect to Wordle. Everyone is sharing in the same experience. Yeah.
1: Everyone gets the same word every day. And the way it's kind of brilliant, the way that the, sh- the sharing of your scores happens because no one actually knows what the words are that anyone guessed. Mm-hmm. But you get to see sort of like the progress that they made and how, the struggle sometimes. If it's like, oh, it looks like you oh, you were one letter off for like three guesses till you finally got it at the end. Or, oh, you didn't get it, but you were so close. You were one letter off. And yeah, you just picked the wrong one three times, <laughs> which I don't know if I've experienced that before with another thing. No, And, and what's crazy to me, too, is as this has
0: grown through social media – no one is spoiling the word of the day. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, touch wood, touch wood. Yeah. Uh, don't be one of those jerks. Don't spoil it. Obviously people are enjoying it. They're having their own challenge for the day and then sharing about it with other people, uh, later, uh, who have that, that same experience of it. But, uh, it is one of the rare moments, uh, in this, you know, crazy fractured world of ours where it's still a shared experience. Yeah. Everyone has, you know, a shared but unique experience, trying to guess the word of the day, that isn't being widely or massively spoiled, which is crazy. Like, there's a lot of just aspects to this that seem to run counter to the way our world and society are going at this current state. Yeah. Like, it'd be easy for people to spoil the word, you know, the wordle word of the day and just be a total jerk about it. Yeah, exactly. But that hasn't really happened, so... Kudos to everyone involved, uh, especially Josh Wardle, who
1: I hope he takes his girlfriend on a nice vacation. Yeah, well, I mean, well, but how great is that? That, like, he literally just made a thing as a gift to his partner. It's a guy. It's a thing that she likes. Oh, now other people like it, too. Oh, now I'm a millionaire yeah. because of it. Great. Like, that's great. Like, it's, it's a great success story. So, like, Josh Wardle does say that, like, he says, he insists that the game will be free for everyone still after the New York Times buys it, though.
0: For the thing, how long? For
1: the, the question is how long. Like, you know, like the New York Times is a bigger company and they did say it'll be initially free, which is also concerning wording. So if you haven't played it yet, play it now while you can for the next several days mm-hmm. before it's not free anymore and then it eventually just stops being a thing that people care about. Certainly. And uh, you might be wondering, well, why did the New York Times buy this? Well,
0: this is an element of uh, the New York Times' plan to try and grow their digital subscription base to 10 million digital subscribers by the year 2025. And there is a section of the New York Times that is, uh, especially their online presence and digital presence, that is just games. Games, yeah. brain games, puzzle games, that kind of thing. So of course, the New York Times Crossword, the very popular, very well-loved New York Times, New York Times Crossword. Uh, but some other... Uh, very uh thought-intensive uh gaming experiences in there as well, and Wordle just fits right in nicely. Yeah. And I will have to say, this Wordle experience, uh, while entertaining as it is online, it's not new, because I remember, I distinctly remember, 20-some-odd years ago, seeing a game show on french cbc in canada which is our national broadcaster they have english channels and french channels seeing on the french channel a a game show called lingo and the premise was you had three teams of two people each taking turns trying to guess the five letter word and they would you know team one would go with a blank slate they'd make a guess and if a letter was in the you know Uh, if it was the right letter, wrong spot, it'd come up yellow. If it was in the, you know, right letter, right spot, it came up as like blue or or green or something. And you just kept going through and teams would keep going until they solved the puzzle. They get points. Ultimately team at the end with the most points went to the bonus round, try and solve a bunch of puzzles in 60 seconds to win money. Yeah. What, you know, whatever, whatever. There ultimately was an English version made, uh, for the game show network. I think it was hosted by Chuck Woolery before he went off the deep end. Uh, and yeah, so this is not a new premise or, uh, working of a word game. I, honest to God, I've seen this because I used to watch it and I used to enjoy it. Yeah. I'd watch it at lunchtime. Uh It was called Lingo. It, both the English and French versions were called Lingo, and this is the exact same thing, the exact <laughs> same mechanic being done, but just uh, being, uh, I guess, done online and done digitally. So that's what makes it different yeah. and work for everyone. And credit to, credit to Josh Wardle, too, for keeping it simple, keeping it free, and keeping it ad-free all this time.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's the, maybe the most impressive thing. Like, it's been going for, uh I think it's been going for 240-ish days, which is the better part of a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he's been basically hosting it on his own server with no ads, no, no ad revenue coming in whatsoever. So it's literally just been out of the goodness of his heart that he's keeping this game running for everyone who plays it. He could very easily just have put a little bit of put a tiny ad at the bottom and probably raked in whatever he's making off the New York Times deal himself, though <laughs> there was kind of a funny comment I saw where you know when there was a new um, one of the first big ripoffs of the game came out like there was like a someone came out with something called wordle but like w o r d l uh-huh. or something like with no e um that had ads on it. And, you know, people were coming out with that as well. There was also an app version that someone released as well with ads put in as well where it was also kind of shot up the best, uh, most popular apps list on one of the – I think it was the Apple App Store. But uh the, I saw a great comment someone made, you know, in response to someone saying, yeah, well, all these blah, 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 making money off of it. Josh Wardle said that he – you know, his intention was never to make money, and then someone was like, well, he succeeded. He didn't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> so this was before the New York Times deal, obviously, yeah. but still. I thought it was very funny that it's like all he needed was a little bit of a space for an ad to put in there, and he probably would have been making tons of cash. Yeah. Certainly, at the bare minimum, would have been, uh, you know,
0: covering his costs to keep it running. Yeah. To, to keep the lights on, as it were. Yes and instead he uh, kind of kept it pure and makes out with a good chunk of cash. He, he says it's in the low seven figures. Take that for what it, you will, but uh, it's between 1 million and just under 10 million. Yeah. So, good on Josh Wardle and no word yet on just the time frame that the New York Times is going to keep this a free game for people to play. Uh Once we know more about that, we will, of course, let you know, because it sounds like there's a lot of you out there playing Wordle. Yeah. And good on you, enjoying that experience and sharing it all over the work chat, perhaps doing it during work time, you know, whatever, you know, get into work, log in, you know, log on, get your coffee, get set down, sat down, settled, and uh do the Wordle. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're set to go for the day. Yeah,
1: now I can go, even though that took me four hours. Oh, okay, now I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> How slow did you play Whew. really had to, really had to think about it Well, when I was down to the sixteen letters left I, I had no idea was <laughs> like, okay well uh hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah we 're going to have to talk about that,
0: but uh uh moving right along, speaking of things that are popular, uh certainly something that has proven to be popular over the last year and change since it was initially released by Sony, is the PlayStation 5 console that unlike so or unlike Microsoft, Sony actually releases uh hard sales figures about their gaming consoles, and we now have firms you know sales data from Sony about the uh success of the Sony playstation 5 and was done so far and it's lifetime sales to date and in a recent earnings report sony announced that or sony revealed that as of december 31st of 2021 the sony playstation 5 home console has sold 17.3 million units yeah essentially in its first year of availability and that of course Outpaces what the Wii did in its lifetime of 13.56 million units. Well, the Wii U, I'm Sorry, yes. Wii U, excuse me. An,
1: an important distinction. Yeah, since the Wii actually did gangbusters. Sure did do gangbusters. But the Wii U... Did 13, not. Did not. 13.56 million. What is the opposite of gangbusters? Um, Bust gangers? <laughs> Jambusters? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so... I bet this number would be much much higher if not for the supply chain issues that have been plaguing the entire electronics industry right now with all the chip shortages and all that. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's kind of surprising that it's already outpay well even with all those problems and you know knowing lots of people who want PS5s not having PS5s yet um it's still <laughs> that it's still outsold some other video game Console that was released with no supply chain problems several years ago. Mm-hmm. And it did just under, you know,
0: almost 20 million units in a year. So if there was no chip shortage, uh, I think that number is over 20 million. Maybe it gets to 25. Maybe more than that. Maybe double that. Yeah. We'll never know. But yeah, exactly. We'll never know because who knows? Yeah. The PS5 was released during a pandemic and also was being manufactured in you know, at a time in a pandemic, so yeah. it's never really had a, a "quote unquote" normal times release, where everything just you know the mechanisms of production and and purchase are functioning normally. It's never had that. Yeah. It, it there will come a day I'm sure when it does have that. Those are still in the distance. Yeah. Exactly. But speaking of sales figures and what systems are selling what, Nintendo also had in earn, uh, an earnings report this week, and in that earnings call with investors and that financial data they released, they revealed that the Nintendo Switch, as of December 31st, 2021, has sold in its lifetime 103.54 million units, which now officially means it sold more units than the Wii So the Wii that did Gangbusters, in its lifetime, sold just over 100 million units. The Switch, to date, in its now, like, three and a half, going on a four-year life cycle, because it was released in March of 2017, has sold 103.54
1: million units. Yeah, going on five years. Yeah, going up. We are in 2022 now. God damn it. (laughs) Yes, Uh, we are.
0: And now I feel just that much older and uh, <laughs> that much more resentful that you reminded me of
1: what year it was. Well, it's not my fault. Time's a cruel mistress, my <laughs> friend. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so the the Switch outsold a gangbusters thing. So, how much... T- like, it's not the best-selling un- console of all time, however, still. That's definitely firmly in the hands of the PlayStation 2. Yes. So... Still is a ways to go before that. Yeah. But, you know, it's... It's been a a very successful experiment on Nintendo's part. And certainly,
0: even if uh, the Switch does not catch up to the Sony PlayStation 2 in terms of lifetime overall sales, it can still uh, become Nintendo's best-selling machine ever. Uh, Currently, it stands as the best-selling home console, having surpassed the the Wii. But the Switch still has has a ways to go before it can surpass the uh, next uh record holder on Nintendo's platform sales list next up is the Nintendo DS which sold in its lifetime 154.02 million consoles across its different iterations different form factors and then tops amongst all else is the Game Boy family of systems so Game Boy Game Boy Game Boy Pocket Game Boy Color Game Boy Advance anything Game Boy branded all those all those stood to sell 188.69 million units over their lifetimes. Yeah. So a ways to go. It may
1: catch, you know, the, the DS.
0: I don't know if it catches the game
1: boy. Yeah. I don't know if that, but, but you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how much longer they want to keep, um, releasing the switch for how, how much longer they want to just consider the switch, the current generation. Yes. Um, Though I could also see them doing something kind of kind of sneaky and Nintendo y where they release a new console, but call it some variation of the Switch, and then continue to add those numbers together, even though it's fundamentally not the same console. True, like the the sales of the Switch are taking into account the you know base
0: Switch uh, console as well as the Switch Lite and now the Switch OLED unit. OLED yeah. LED units. Or whatever the Switch 2 is going to be. Yeah. You know, similar to like DS and 3DS and whatnot. True, very true. And God knows there was a number of different iterations in there as well. Yeah. There was the DS, the DS Lite, 3DS, 3DSi, 3DS XL,
1: the <laughs> but, 2DS. But also, even in with the Game Boy, there was the Game Boy, the Game Boy Advance, the Game Boy Color, the Game Boy SP, the Game Boy... like
0: Game Boy Pocket, Game, Game Boy, Boy... Pocket,
1: Game Boy Micro. Like, yep. they Like, they...
0: It's not just one form factor.
1: Yeah, and it's also not technically just one generation there as well. So no. like that was another like two or three gaming generations spanning 11 different form factors that they're all kind of rolling together, I would imagine. Over a span of like 15, 20 maybe 15 years? 15, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So I could see like if they, if they continue that, or if they do a similar thing to that, I could see the Switch easily outpacing the Game Boy. Certainly. Uh, I see
0: the logic and I'm there as well with you. So, uh, the Switch also, uh, has the distinction of being the fastest home console to hit 100, 100 million units sold, surpassing, uh, the previous marks set by the Wii and the Sony PlayStation 4. Uh, so that is, uh, something to, uh, You know, make note of as well, Uh, perhaps that's a factoid at a future pub trivia night, but, uh, for the nine months of the Nintendo's 2022 fiscal year, those nine months that ended on, uh, December 31st, 2021, the Nintendo Switch sold 18.95 million units, so that is down by 21.4% compared to the year of 2020, or the previous year, but still, the Switch also being impacted by chip shortages as well. Yeah. So there's that as well. So Nintendo hopes to uh, uh get that sales number for the financial year that ends in March, get it up to 23 million Switch units sold. So even so, the Switch, it's not young, it's turning five years old this year, is doing very, very well, still. Yeah, absolutely. And full credit to uh, the people who are still buying it, still enjoying it, and uh, everyone involved, uh, at Nintendo's part in the planning department, because this is doing much better than their previous uh consoles. Yeah, v- very much so. I think this is the benefit of having one device.
1: Yeah. Like all yeah, your- we well we were talking about that for years anyways where it's like Even when the Switch first came out, they were still coming out with new DSs and 3DSs and things like that, and I think we were initially like, well, what are they doing? The Switch also is technically a handheld device, Why aren't they, like, laying into that a little bit more, rather than trying to reinvigorate this other handheld thing? Like... And you know, now that they've shifted their strategy, it's clearly been working for them.
0: Absolutely, and uh, sales of the Switch have picked up. Uh, not only that, the output of software and content for the Switch has picked up and been steady. Yeah, I think the Switch has enjoyed perhaps the steadiest output of Nintendo
1: releases of any previous Nintendo device. Yeah, and it's great because you—you you clearly they've clearly um, consolidated the efforts of various development teams. Onto one device. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I really want to play that new whatever game, but I don't want to have to play it on a mobile device or vice versa. Like mm-hmm. I I really don't want to have to be bound to a TV to play this thing or whatever. So it's like, yeah. So now if you want to play a new Pokemon game, you could play it on your TV if you want to. That's which is true, great.
0: Which people do want. I mean, the sales of say Shining Diamond and Brilliant Pearl have been, you know, done pretty well. Uh, I did read a factoid, I believe born out of Nintendo's latest financial report, uh, for the quarter, that, uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus, the, the brand new Pokemon game, the open world one where it's kind of set in, the before time. Yep. Uh, that one is the second fastest selling Switch game worldwide ever, second only to Animal Crossing New Horizons. Uh, I believe Pokemon Legends Arceus selling like, Something like 7 million units in its first 5 days worldwide. I could see it. Which is a whole lot of units worldwide. Now, I mean, Animal Crossing New Horizons sold like, I think 11? The figure I saw was over 11 million units in like, its first week of sale, but that was, as we've spoken about before, that was a very specific point in time when the world felt like it was ending
1: and people needed solace and comfort and something to take their mind off things. Yeah, a meditative experience to kind of, like, help calm your mind in the middle of all the craziness that was happening. Um, And it just... Frankly, I would say it was lucky that it was Animal Crossing. It could have been anything. Mm-hmm. But, like, Animal Crossing doesn't have the name value that Pokemon has. Certainly not. I mean, it does now. Like, let's not... It's, it's worked up to that point, yeah, but prior to this. Yeah. At that point, I, don't, I wouldn't say it was. Like, I would say it was probably a B-list game at best. But you know, considering Pokemon one of the A-list franchises up there with Mario and mm-hmm. whatever, Zelda. Halo and Zelda and things like that, that people might recognize Call of Duty like people have heard of Pokemon. Like if it's a thing, like you can walk into your grandparents house and say, Hey, uh, have you heard of Pokemon? And they'll say, yeah, that's that that's that yellow rat thing. Right. <laughs> I think that, I think that's a good test to see if, you know, it's popular or not. They won't know what animal crossing is. They'll be like, what the hell's that animal crossing? Is that like the zoo or <laughs> <laughs> true?
0: Very true. So, uh, yeah, so the Nintendo Switch continuing to sell well, and uh, we'll see how the year 2022 unfolds as uh, ultimately chip shortage and production issues continue for everything. Yeah. Every sort of major electronic and minor electronic. Because the major electronics are impacted, that backs up and delays things for minor electronics and, mm-hmm. and their production. So The cycles of production are not running smoothly. No, they're not. But uh, those are stories we'll follow as the rest of the year unfolds. Uh, that is in the future. We, of course, are in the here and now. And being in the here and now, we want to take time to look backwards go back in time and uh, uh get into our blasts from the past. These are uh this is our segment of the show where we take some time to recognize, honor, admire, fet some things that are celebrated milestone anniversaries. These are things we think are certainly worth talking about and worth knowing. Maybe you've heard of them, maybe you've enjoyed them, maybe you haven't and this is all new to you. In which case, you're welcome. Send us money later. <laughs> uh but we have two items this week. We have a TV series and a video game to talk about, uh, celebrating differing anniversaries. One is 25 years old, the other one, uh, the TV series, came to a conclusion 15 years ago. Uh, where would you like to start this particular episode? We could probably start with the... The older of the two, I think. Very well. The older of the two will take us back to the point in time that was February 10th of the year 1997,
1: uh, back when, uh. Well, it was the Halcyon days of early 3D video games. When yes. the very first roster of like fully 3D polygon video games were being released. So we're talking N64 and PlayStation era, that was the console battle that was raging at the time. Sega was already kind of largely relegated. To the to, sidelines. Yeah, they were on third place, you know, with whatever they were doing with either it was the Saturn or... I think or, it was the Saturn. Dreamcast
0: or, was a few years later.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, they, they kind of fell out of the spotlight there. But, yeah, the, the big two were Nintendo with the Nintendo 64 and Sony with the PlayStation. Uh, and one of the tentpole Nintendo 64 releases of the day was this one, Mario Kart 64. Absolutely, a full 3D Mario Kart game. Yeah, so a sequel to the the wildly popular Mario Kart that was on Super Nintendo, the original, which, you know, was a weird, off one of Nintendo's weird Nintendo titles, you know, mm-hmm. the off to the side, they take all of their characters that are normally engaged in, you know... Stereotypical stories like princesses kidnapped, Mario has to kid has to save her from the evil Lord Bowser or whatever. But then you know this was kind of on the same side as like the the other games, like the the tennis and you know various things like that, where all of these characters are now racing against each other in go karts for some reason because oh they're just actors in a play over there or something, mm-hmm. and this is what they do in this their off their, time. Yeah, this is
0: their downtime. This is a, them getting together when they're not playing a board game in Mario Party. Yeah. They're out driving around on courses, uh, racing go-karts. And, uh, this, you know, brought a whole new slate of, uh, tracks and courses to run through. Uh, most notably to me, I remember Moo Moo Meadows. Yep. Yeah, that was a great classic one as well as Toad's Turnpike. That's right. Too. That was a solid one in here as well. And, uh, a, another solid Mario Kart experience. Yeah. This, this was one of those titles that was kind of a staple to have on your shelf if you had an N64.
1: Yeah, because it was, it was just a great, the N64 I think was the, the, maybe had the potential and shown to prove to have the potential to be the greatest couch co-op console because natively supported four players. I mean, TV technology back then wasn't the greatest, so like you had a quarter of of already fuzzy TV. Mm -hmm. So your, your quarter is very fuzzy and it's not the best, but it's four players out of the box. All you needed was extra controllers. So like, you know, this game, golden eye, Mario party, uh, smash brothers that, that right there, that can, (laughs) you know, that, that was better than any of the other consoles that were out at the time. Cause at most, well, you, I think the Super Nintendo supported four, but you only very few games and you needed an extra accessory for it. It's true. But this, out of the box, natively, four yeah. players. The four controller ports right there on the front of the machine,
0: and even if you maybe only had two, you probably knew someone or were friends with someone who had another controller or two, could bring them over, or hell, if you were just having, you know, uh, GoldenEye Deathmatch Night, uh, everyone brings their own controller. Yeah. And you just plug it in and it just works. That's Mm -hmm. the, that was one of the beauties of the multiplayer. It just worked. Yeah. You didn't have to set anything up. You plugged in your controller. You got your segment of the screen. You had to try and make sure not to get
1: confused. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's still a problem to this day with couch co-op games sometimes, but, uh, yeah. This is, this is
0: one of those games from the early era of Mario Kart games that I still enjoy, uh, because uh In playing through it, a lot of the importance is put on your driving ability as going through the courses, whereas I, fu- uh, I found as Mario Kart games have gone along, more of the impetus and importance is on just the
1: items you get. Yeah, though... And, and the overpowering of some items. Though, to be fair, this is the game that introduced the blue shell, which I think shouldn't be there. Yeah? Like, yeah, it, like it feels less a reward for, you know, the or it feels less like it's something to level the playing field when you're in a very poor position and more a punishment for doing very well. True. Is all it is always felt like to me. And yes, it's this game that started it. I can personally say that currently I think my favorite Mario Kart game is eight. Like, I, I think I've played a lot of it and I went back to play this recently because, you know, I got that expansion pack on Switch Online mm-hmm. because I was just, whatever, curious and other people had it as well and wanted to play some online stuff. But going back to this, obviously, it's, it's – when you go back to an earlier game like this after playing something that's so polished like Mario Kart 8, it does feel a little clunky. But yeah. I don't know. Most of my Mario Kart nostalgia personally does lie on the Super Nintendo original, Mm -hmm. which again, like, that was pure skill. There was no blue shell. Red shells existed, but still, like, the... Red Red shells were the ultimate weapon. Yeah, and still, like, you know, there was nothing that really set you back too bad in terms of items, and there were no items that were, like, real, like, crazy, like, once you have this, it's sort of, like, game over for everyone else, like, They were still relatively balanced, but, and yeah, very similar on N64 as well, with the exception of the blue shell. That's the only, that's the only thing I have about the N64.
0: I I can see that. I still feel like Mario Kart 64 is a game that didn't become entirely reliant on items for success in the game. Yeah. Uh, I think basically up to, and anything after,
1: I'd say Double Dash. Yeah. On The the GameCube. But then they, they, I think they brought it back again in eight. Like eight relies more on skill. Like there are a lot of items, but at, at that point, like there's more of an abundance of items when you're doing more poorly and it's not going to help you to do better at that point because you're just kind of battling against everyone else with items who's already doing poorly. Mm-hmm. So like it does, it takes skill to get out. Anyways, that's just my own personal opinion on that, but that's, yeah. Between the first two Mario Kart games, I think is where all of the standard, all the classic stuff was established, really, that we really consider uh, all of the, the important aspects of Mario Kart. Certainly, I agree.
0: And, uh, uh, 25 years old, and as you mentioned, you can have the experience again on the uh, Nintendo Switch Online expansion pack, which is the, uh, uh, additional section of the, uh, uh, Nintendo Switch Online service. It's like, what, 25? An additional twenty five bucks for the year,
1: something like that. Something like that. Forty bucks. I think that's. I think it's like forty bucks. It's like forty something dollars for the year.
0: That's right. The twenty five uh, dollar figure in my head was uh that's the cost of the Animal Crossing DLC.
1: Yeah, where which it's free when you get the the expansion pack, anyways. Yeah. So if you're into Animal Crossing,
0: the expansion pack might be worth it. Because then you get, you know, $25 of the $40 price point for Switch Online for a year gets you the DLC. And then you're paying like
1: 10 bucks each for Sega Genesis games and N64 games. Yeah. Which admittedly I haven't really, <laughs> I haven't really done much with the, um, Animal Crossing stuff yet because, you know, I've just been playing other games and whatever, but still. Yeah. It's there.
0: You'll have it, though. Yeah. And that's the important thing. So 25 years old is Mario Kart 64, and we go in a different direction in time to February 9th, 2007, because that was the point in time when the last episode of this TV series aired. And this is one of those items where there's a very good chance you've never heard of this. Yeah. But Dennis and I very much are familiar with it because we absolutely... Absolutely loved it when it was on. We were talking about a TV series that was on uh, an obscure
1: cable channel at the time. It was on Spike TV, the network for men. Well, I don't know if it was obscure at the time. I think at the time it was popular, but it wasn't popular for very long.
0: And it, it had a brief moment in the sun. Yeah. And this was one of those series that uh, really was unique. Uh, to try and draw people into it that you could not see anywhere else this series is, Most Extreme Elimination Challenge, otherwise known as MXC.
1: Yeah, so this was a weird one because this was basically... There was a show in Japan called Takeshi's Castle, which was a, a game show that aired in the late 80s in Japan, where people wore ridiculous outfits and had to basically face ridiculous challenges. Like it's a, it's a physical contest game show. Yeah, it's a physical contest game show. It's a almost a more I want to say a more stereotypical Japanese style game show. If you've watched Japanese game shows before, a lot of them have all these crazy physical challenges where people literally have to scale a mountain while being, you know, bombarded with giant foam boulders, or um, have to try to balance on a beam while being pelted with some kind of. You know, thing mm-hmm. or like balance across like a thing above a big w- thing full of water or things like that. Like ludicrous, like I'd say, kind of similar to like America, America, uh, Wipeout. Or, well, Wipeout is one of them, but uh, like American Ninja Warrior, okay, kind of things or like, like that.
0: American Gladiators, or, yeah,
1: things like that. Except for the more every person, like you don't have to be a like. I don't think most of the people on this show were elite-level athletes. They seem kind of like average people just trying to do their best in Mm -hmm. these crazy situations. But it was a Japanese show from the 80s that what happened with this MXC was they took this show and basically just re-edited it and just put ludicrous um, dubbing over top of it. So none of it was real, but it was just – Basically, comedy bits that made fun of the show through the use of, like, ridiculous dubbing. Which doesn't sound like it would be that great. Like, oh, just redubbing some show incorrectly? Like, how funny is that? No, it was really funny. No, it was an absolute hoot. Yeah, it was hilarious. It was completely ridiculous.
0: Uh, if you've seen on the internet any videos from Bad Lip Reading, uh the YouTube channel Bad Lip Reading, this is kind of like Bad Lip Reading before Bad Lip Reading on the internet.
1: Yeah. So, uh, with, without as much effort put in towards like actually matching, you know, the the lip movements to the talking, but yeah. But it was more about just like the visuals that you would see versus what the <laughs> what they would have the people say in relation to that. It was always ridiculous. Absol-
0: it's one of the most enjoyable and satisfying brain dead shows you can watch. Yeah. Like there's th- like each episode is its own contained thing, it's its own half hour show. Um and you can just sit there and just be entertained and laugh your ass off. Because this is one of the like better written stupid comedy shows.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that I really miss about that specific era of TV where it was dumb but it knew it was dumb and it leaned into it in a way that like You know, it wasn't afraid to just be dumb. And there was nothing wrong with it. Like, there was no pretension about it. Yes,
0: absolutely. It was being dumb for the sake of being dumb. It knew what it was doing was dumb, and it was just kind of reveling in that fact.
1: Yeah, but it was never, like, mean or, like, really, like, you know, hateful or anything like that. It was just dumb for the sake of being dumb. It was a lighthearted dumbness. Yeah. Like, there was no maliciousness to it.
0: And it was absolutely entertaining. The comedy done by... Quote unquote, Kenny Blankenship and Vic Romano, the very Americanized, very obviously Japanese host was what carried the show all throughout. Yeah. And uh, I always got the sense watching this show at the time and, you know, seeing it in clips online or or other ways afterward that it's always seemed like this is a show where it's a small writing staff and they're literally just all writing things to try and make each other laugh and they're having fun doing what they're doing. Yeah. And the fact they are having fun as the writing staff to me came through and was a clearly palpable element of this program.
1: Yeah. And like just other ridiculous aspects, like one of the other, like they had their two uh, on the ground kind of, like, not hosts, but they're on the ground interviewing people, mm-hmm. you know, like hosts as well. Like, not the anchors, if you want to consider them that, but like... The sideline reporters. The, the sideline reporters, the field people. Yeah. They had Captain Taneel and Guy LaDouche, <laughs> <laughs> which the names alone are ridiculous. Like, Captain Taneel was a reference to Captain Antoneal, obviously, which was, like, that 1970s musical act, but Gila Douche, like, <laughs> was a name like that. And he was always, like, a sex pervert, essentially. <laughs> because he was a sideline reporter who had just, like, some creepy-looking mustache, too. Yeah. Which I'm sure might have been in the, uh, the style of the late 80s in Japan, but Probably. was was not in vogue in North America in the early 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> so, which... Yeah, a lot of that, you know, came through, like a lot of the humor was from that as well, where...
0: There's disconnect in the timing of things between the visuals and, and I guess the, the audio track, uh, but like another staple too I always enjoyed is that there would always be a contestant, uh, coming through doing a run of whatever challenge ahead of them, that was always such and such Baba Ganoosh. There was always some sort of competitor who always had the last name Baba Ganoosh. Yeah. Because it's just a
1: funny sounding word. Yeah, well, uh, on Wikipedia they're saying the Baba Ganoush family is a family of contestants from the Middle East who appear nearly in every episode. The last name Baba Ganoush became a popular running gag throughout the series, comes from Chris Darga's Lebanese heritage, Chris Darga being one of the writers of the show, in which uh, Baba Ganoush is a very popular entree. If you've never had it, it's, it's pretty good. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's... Yeah, it it lasted for about 5 seasons. There's about 80 episodes, 81 episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh it, it did last for 5 seasons, not about 5 seasons. That's a ridiculous yeah. thing to say. There was 5 seasons of this program that were aired, 81 episodes in total. Um Yeah, I'm sure you can find clips online.
0: Clips online. I know Amazon Prime has I think the last season it has
1: season five, but that's all it has because Prime is a weird service. Yeah, Prime is very strange because they'll have like season three of a show and you're like, well, what about season one, two, four, and five? Why did you just have the third season of this? What? (laughs) Or they may be missing some episodes of different seasons. Yeah.
0: So I know I have watched season five of MXC on Amazon Prime. I don't know if it's still there. I don't exactly know how that all works if things come and go like Netflix. Uh, there was a DVD set released uh, back in the mid-2000s, uh, maybe closer to the 2010s. Uh, I'd imagine that's out of print, but if it's floating around and if you have enough money burning a hole in your wallet, try and frack it down that way. Or just find clips online and just sit there. And if you need... Just like a catharsis, if you need to turn your brain off, you know, stressful day, you know, whatever you're dealing with, you just need to sit and laugh at like, you know, just lighthearted stupidity, you know, people falling down go boom, but they're not actually hurt. Yeah. This is a great show for you. Yeah. With a ridiculously hilarious commentary. Like, this is a style of show you don't really see anymore. Although, yes and no, though, because shows like Wipeouts have come back along. Yeah. Yeah where it's people falling down go boom you have the commentators uh making jokes at their
1: expense yeah but like the really like the big set piece game show where people have to kind of run through a warehouse worth of stuff it's not really a thing that i mean it 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 goes in and out of style and i mm-hmm. i like when it's in style because it you know i grew up with american gladiators and stuff so like I always loved, like, the big Eliminator at the end, so... Right? Yeah. <laughs> There's always something big and
0: impressive about
1: that. Yeah. About, like, a real, tangible, physical experience. Yeah. Which has come back a couple of times on Netflix, but, like, in very limited runs. Like, they had that, uh, that oh, show... Oh, Floor is Lava. Floor is Lava is one of them, and then there was that other show hosted by Terry Crews, whose name is Escaping Me. Um, uh... It doesn't matter. But whatever the case. That, but, yeah... This is another one of those ones that, you know, it, it's worth going back and, you know, trying to seek out a couple of episodes. I'm sure some of this stuff is probably a little dated at this point, being late, early 2000s. Like, you know, the, I hate to early say two thousands. But, but the world was still a different place because that was almost 20 years ago. The world's always a different place 20 years ago. Yeah. So society, culture, politics, everything moves in a different direction. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. I'm, I'm sure some stuff, Probably hasn't aged well, but other stuff is probably just still as goofy and relevant as ever. Absolutely. And
0: like I said, this is a show that seems like it was a small production team, probably a small budget to do, but because they had a small budget, they could just kind of do whatever they wanted with it. Yeah. And the people behind it just had absolute fun. Yeah. I have no doubt the writer's room was just laughing your ass off every day at work. Probably So watch it. It's it's mindless humor, mindless entertainment, but you need that sometimes, and this is a good outlet for it. Find clips of it online. We're talking about MXC, the most extreme elimination challenge from a time when Spike TV tried to be kind of like the go-to network for men, when they transitioned from being... Like that as a broadcast entity started life as the Nashville network. Yeah. Transitioned into being the national network when they, uh, got the broadcast threads for a couple of years to WWE Monday Night Raw. Mhm. And then became Spike TV, the first network for men.
1: Yeah. Where they had MXC, they had a bunch of animated content. And like, if you ever wanted to watch Star Trek, it was on like 70% of the time. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> And that was a specific point in time that was fantastic for us, watching TV. Yeah, I mean, if you had, like, afternoons off, like, from school or whatever, like, because, you know, Spike was on, Spike was on, like, when we were in grade, like, 12 or whatever, mm-hmm. and I would watch a bunch of Star Trek on a couple of afternoons here and there, like, oh, okay, great. So, nothing to do? All right, well,
0: it's a next-generation kind of afternoon. Done. Yeah. And you're set, and you're yeah. happy with it, too. So, uh, yeah, very specific point in time, but uh, entertaining nonetheless. And some of it will—some of MXC will hold up, some of it will not, but you'll still get a chuckle out of it regardless. Yeah, hopefully. And uh, before that, we spoke about, spoke about Mario Kart 64 for the N64, which was released on February 10th of 1997, and that makes it uh, a goodish 25 years old uh, that's that's a goodish amount of time. Yeah. Uh, of course, you can experience it again, as we said, through the Switch Online Expansion Pack, or the original one if you still have an N64 kicking around. Plug it in, dust it off, go for some old-school local... Four-player couch co-op. Yeah. With everyone in your bubble being COVID-safe, of course. Yes, of course. So uh, that's... Yes, let us know your thoughts on all of those. Did you engage in four-player couch co-op with Mario Kart 64? Who was your favorite character? And did you watch and enjoy MXC, Most Extreme Elimination Challenge, from that specific point in the early 2000s let us know info at the dot com your thoughts on those as well as anything else and you can always send us messages in the short form uh we are on twitter and facebook at the arcade show on both of those platforms and if you haven't done so already subscribe yourself and subscribe everyone else you can to the arcade We're on iTunes, we're on Google Podcasts, and direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So until next time, good night,
1: everybody. Good night.